You're listening to Sluggish, a newsletter and now podcast on disability and deviance by me, Jesse Meadows. I'm going to be picking the brains of artists, writers, and academics for your listening pleasure. So make sure you're subscribed at sluggish.substack.com to get episodes in your inbox. Today, I bring you a very interesting conversation with Misha Fraser Carroll on her new book, Mad World, The Politics of Mental Health. Misha is a writer and editor based in London whose work focuses on the theme of liberation. And when she sent this book to me, I honestly screamed because I've been waiting for something like this to exist. Misha also quoted my work in this book, which is, to me, the highest honor, and I'm so excited to be included in a book that I love so much. Mad World weaves together disability justice with mad studies and abolition to give us a political view of mental health that prioritizes solidarity, self-advocacy, and autonomy. What I love most about it is just how complicated it is. Misha gives us lots of questions with lots of different answers and embraces the fact that there is a lot we can't know, but that doesn't mean we can't work together to make change. This is an expansive conversation full of big ideas about the limits of rationality, the complicated nature of diagnosis, the liberating power of art, and all the big possibilities to be found in embracing disability and refusing to disavow each other in our political movements. I had so much fun chatting with Misha, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. For a long time, I feel like I've been screaming into the void about politicizing mental health. And I'm just like so psyched to see the tide turning and like books like yours coming out, especially that are like accessible for a really wide audience. I think you've written like such a great primer for anyone who's not familiar with all these different things like mad studies, disability justice, abolition, neurodivergent, discourse, asylum history. Like you really like packed so many things into one book. And I was just thinking while I was reading it, like how hard it must have been. (laughs) Did it like keep you up at night? (laughs) Yeah, it kept me up at night. It was extremely hard. Like I feel like I say this often, I feel like I kind of wrote the book in circles. I think writing a book is hard for anyone, but I think maybe mm-hmm. for like more neurotypical people it's like more possible to write kind of in a linear way from start to finish whereas I feel like I just wrote and rewrote and rewrote and rewrote it's like some chapters I feel like I rewrote probably 10 times and it was much longer than it ended up being in the end I think because like you say there's just so much that I wanted to cram into it um and everything that's in it like from you know art to the history of asylums to abolition like it all felt essential for a primer. I was like, I can't think of anything here that I, that could be taken out. Um, But it was really hard. And I think it's good to be honest about how hard the process is because yeah, there were definitely times where I was like, I don't know if this is going to get finished. Like, is there actually going to be a final product? But yeah, I feel happy that there is. And this can finally kind of go out into the world. I also write in circles. I'll write something and then I'll like leave it for like a month and then I'll come back to it, completely rewrite it. So that's actually really comforting to hear. Yeah. And it, and it's, it's nice to do that with a book. I think like there were definitely times that I did that or times where I was like, you actually just have to stop because, you know, when you say a word so many times it loses all meaning like that happened with the sentences. I was like, yeah. leave it two weeks, come back and you'll be reading it and you'll be like, oh, these are some quite good points. Or you'll be like, (laughs) what is this? Like you can see so much more clearly kind of what needs to happen. Time and space is always good. And I feel like it's very fitting because your book is about 
mad studies to not be writing in like a really linear, like rational way. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah. I want to talk about this obsession that we have with rationality, which I think is like a major theme that I see in the book. You say that a lot of people are scared to critique mental health because they don't want to get the science wrong, which is like an ongoing frustration for me because I see people with like really great political analysis of other areas like gender or race or body size and then they get to like a DSM diagnosis and like it all just stops and I'm like no keep going you know so um, I'm wondering if you could talk about like how this obsession with objectivity gets in the way of politicizing mental illness yeah definitely I think that experience you speak to is something that I've experienced too like a lot of people that I've worked with or organized with or, you know, other people who have written books on, you know, abolition or political subjects would be like, oh, I really want to help or like, you know, I'm happy to look at it. But mental health, like it's not really my area of expertise. Like I don't know about all the science. And it's like, I think especially, you know, as marginalized people, suffering and mental distress is around us all the time in our communities, like whether people have diagnoses or not that is a reality of our communities. Like we have much higher levels of mental distress. And so I think it's really important to kind of push against that idea that there is kind of this, um, I don't know, this like shrouded, like protected knowledge, um, you know, that our knowledge doesn't um, like rack up against. And this is something that I try to push against in the book, you know, the idea that when we talk about mental health awareness, there is like a correct type of awareness and a correct type of knowledge that should be circulated when we talk about how we all need to be more aware. And actually the fact that like our lived experiences, our lived realities, the way that we choose to make sense of the world is just as valid, like can tell you just as much about mental health or probably more about mental health than something that you're going to get on like a medical website um, or like you say from the DSM. But I do think this kind of this obsession that we have with finding like objective truth around mental health. And I think you see it a lot in kind of debates around it. Like, is it illness or is it just ordinary distress? Is it a chemical imbalance? Is it biological? Is it social? Sometimes I think this search for like the final objective truth can be something that's actually quite rooted in like white and colonial thinking, you know, this idea that there'll be one philosophical truth to trump them all. When in actuality, like, Mental health is so personal, it's so subjective. And I think maybe it's a good thing that we can all make sense of our experiences in ways that work for us. Um, And there might be plural truths and plural realities. Yeah, there's a line where you you call it an embrace of not knowing, which I really love. And I feel like that's like there throughout the book. You're bringing up a lot of like questions and like possibilities and like various different answers but not being like here's the one thing that we need to do and I, and that's yep. just like it's so hard to make work like that and I, I aspire to make work like that but it's like it's hard to sit with all of those conflicting truths yeah because it's so counter like you say to like this kind of logic or thing of rationality that we're so obsessed with like what is the answer where can we find it like when will the science discover the neurotransmitter or the drug or like whatever it is that kind of like solves it all. And I think embracing like not knowing or intangibility or just like accepting that there are some things we might not have a final answer for, I think that translates to how we think about how we respond to mental health as well. 
Um, and I talk about this towards the end of the book, you know, that so many of the responses we have right now to mental distress are extremely carceral um, or rooted in this idea, like if we just assess the risk or just do this or that kind of we'll, we'll work out how to shut it down or how to eliminate distress. But actually like sometimes like we're not going to know what the clearest answer is and we have to kind of sit with that and accept that like our responses to mental health might need to be really slow or really personalized or, you know, might come to us over time. There's not always just like a clear answer that you can point towards in a book. Yeah, I feel like one of the main misconceptions that I see people making about like neurodiversity is that like it's just about denying suffering and and trying to be like, uh, this is a superpower or whatever. Like like when we say like embrace these things about us, it's not necessarily saying that like it's not there or like it's not painful, you know? Yeah, that's such a good point and something that I had to like grapple with in the book as well, because I think that a lot of the ways that neurodiversity is talked about, or like I see it being talked about, you know, online, etc., like really does lean into this superpower thing. And the idea that like to say, you know, also with mental health more specifically, to say like it's a construct um, or, you know, it's part of neurodiversity, people think that you're saying that we don't suffer, like suffering doesn't exist um, or like life isn't hard um, for neurodivergent people. But like neurodiversity at its core for me is about getting rid of the idea that like there is inherent value ascribed to different like ways of thinking and being in the world and being like actually it's okay to exist this way you know it's not something that needs to be changed or eliminated like if you're not you know you're not able to change it or you don't want to change it yeah I so like I got kind of into critical psychiatry over the past few years just because like I was kind of starved for like critique of mental illness and lately I've been thinking I don't know I've just been noticing some things about it where I'm like it's like giving me pause and then in your book you talk about this trap that sometimes we can fall into that you call disavowal um, and how that comes up in like critical or like anti-psychiatry could you like talk a little bit about what that looks like Mm -hmm. yeah so I think I've followed like quite a similar trajectory to the one that you've been describing of like we find the critique and like, you know, a genuinely social political critique of the way that we think about mental health um, and kind of dive into it. And then, like you say, I think, especially when I started reading more disability justice informed and also materialist analyses of mental health, I started to kind of think about this idea of disavowal, which is a term that I think I took from the autistic activist Lydia Xed Brown who talks about sometimes in disabled spaces or mad spaces, you know, you might have people saying, oh, well, you know, I'm a mad person or a person who experiences mental distress, but like, there's nothing actually wrong with me. Like, it's not a real illness. And so I shouldn't be treated X, Y, or Z way. And while I say in the book, you know, it's really important that if we want to reject illness as like a term for ourselves, we should be able to. What's the result of kind of putting that forcible distance between the two and saying, actually, I'm nothing to do with that. And then you also kind of see it on the other side. And I use a quote from Lydia where they talk about people being, you know, physically disabled people saying, you know, well, I might be physically disabled, but there's nothing wrong with my mind. My mind works fine. And I think 
you can sometimes see this disavowal in movements, in disabled movements, people kind of wanting to be a bit distanced from the unpalatability of madness or mental distress or mental illness. And so I kind of, I try to kind of break this down and say, well, why is it that we have these tendencies, you know, in our movements? And I think it does make a lot of sense that when people are kind of scrambling for like whatever rights they can get, that they kind of put distance between themselves and other marginalized groups. But I think it's something that's ultimately, um, those kind of rhetorics can ultimately be really destructive to our movements. And the example that I kind of draw out a bit more is when homosexuality was depathologized in 1973. And I feel like this is something that, you know, in queer communities and just like the historical record is always discussed as just like a straightforward, like amazing victory that was like historic for queer communities. But I try to kind of unpack that and tease out actually, you know, what happened when um, the gay rights movement or members of the gay rights movement said, we're not sick, we're not mad we should not be grouped in with these people. We should be separate over here and kind of have our rights and assimilate. And I try to kind of interrogate this idea that actually when we create that kind of distance, we're disavowing other people who should be part of our movements. And I try to argue that there's something to be gained from saying, actually, we are both being oppressed because we're deviant. You know, like I might not consider myself to be ill or mad or, you know, to have the same struggle as another person in this group. But we're all experiencing a similar kind of oppression um, under capitalism. And I think the same goes, for example, um, solidarity with prisoners and criminalized people. You know, this is something that you sometimes hear in survivor movements is, you know, people saying, I was treated like a criminal, but I'd actually done nothing wrong. And it's like, again, what what are you actually doing when you're positioning yourself as kind of better than or separate to this other group, which necessarily means kind of pushing them down um, and re- reinforcing their oppression. And I draw on, um, I know you've read Health Communism, um, mm-hmm. Adler Bolton and RTV Kant's book. They have this idea of the surplus class, right? Where they talk about this kind of big group of people who are all kind of excluded, marginalized, oppressed under capitalism and kind of... Uh, pushed out of labor markets. And I kind of say like, is there a way of kind of uniting under a term like that or like the label of, okay, we're all deviant or we're all, you know, considered to be deviant in our society and holding together in solidarity rather than disavowing each other. Yeah. Yeah. I took some of that and applied it to what I see in like ADHD spaces all the time around Adderall people will be like, oh, this is my medicine. Like, I'm not like those like drug addicts that use meth. And I'm like, well, it's kind of the same chemical, (laughs) like chemically. And also the effects are like pretty much the same. The difference is just like the dose and like how you're doing it, but also like class and like the access you have to like regulation of drugs and like the safety and whatever. And that was something that really bothered me because I've been a drug user and also like a psych patient. So I've encountered the same drug in different contexts. And I was just like, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's such a kind of like respectability politics. And also it's like, yeah, it doesn't take account of the ways that like many people are self-medicating or how do you even differentiate like what is self-medication versus recreational? You know, all of these kind of divisions, I think, can sometimes be really unhelpful. So yeah, I think that it's really important that we think about kind of 
what are the common structures that we're all struggling against? And we're much stronger like if we unite and kind of struggle against them together. It's been really hard for me because I feel like we both have this like complicated position where we're like critiquing, but also advocating for people who are mad or or labeled in these ways or whatever. And I keep going back to ADHD because that's like what I what I critique the most. But like I was diagnosed with ADHD and like I have all of my criticisms about pathologizing distraction and like how these things can be seen as like our bodies like protesting these conditions that we're in. And a lot of like critical psychiatrists will have critiques about ADHD where they're like saying like, it's not real, it's a myth. And I'm like, no, I experienced this thing that like we're calling ADHD and I'm not trying to say like this isn't real, but also let's think about the power dynamics that like shape the way that we talk about. It's just like so hard to like occupy that really complicated in-between space. Yeah, it's so complex. And like, yeah, I I experienced the same thing. I originally had a, in the first draft, had a chapter that was like, is mental illness real? Then it just became like too meta, like talking about like Mm -hmm. what is real, what is a construct? And if something's constructed, is it real? And all of this. But I think it's kind of both at the same time, right? Or like, that's what I argue in the book. I talk about how capitalist work plays such a big role in constructing what we think of as like deviant or illness or, you know, different um, forms of neurodivergence and how like actually so much of like, you know, stuff that's in the DSM is completely structured around, can you go to work and sell your labor under neoliberal capitalism? I I think I experienced a similar thing with ADHD where I'm like, in that sense, it's kind of not real because it's constructed, like it's constructed in a specific historical context. But the experience that I'm having is still very real. And like the material conditions that constructed this, like all of that stuff is real. And so I think it kind of becomes when you're doing this kind of, oh, it's not real or like, oh, it's all social. Sometimes I find that difficult because I feel like yeah, with with my neurodivergence, I just don't know. Like, I actually don't know whether, you know, whether I was born this way or not. And that's when you start to kind of come back to like, or have an intersection with conversations around queerness, right? It's kind of like, yeah, are we born this way? Like, I don't know, but maybe it doesn't mm-hmm. matter that much. Like, maybe the project of like our liberation doesn't rely on getting an answer uh, to whether there's some like real or biological um, like root to it. I think you say in the book, like, it's it's a distraction. And I just feel like so many people get stuck on, like, why, why? Like, why am I like this? Have you read uh, Trans Liberation by Leslie Feinberg? No. There's a quote in that that's, like, talking about the same thing in terms of, like, queerness, like, the search for, like, the gay brain. And as long as we're being exploited, like, it doesn't really matter, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just, just the phrase, the gay brain. I'm like, love my gay brain. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, yeah, it's so true. And I, so I think these questions about like, is it real or is it not? Like, to me, they mainly feel useful if we're actually looking at what are the conditions that construct these things, right? Like, I think if I start to think about, you know, I often use the example of hearing voices in the book because, you know, there are many people who hear voices, especially, for example, in Caribbean communities, like I'm Caribbean, that's my heritage. Many people say, well, actually, this is a spiritual thing or a religious thing, or it's not something that necessarily bothers me. And actually, 
the reason why it's pathologized is because if you're a person who hears voices, it's probably going to interfere with your ability to work <laughs> within yeah. the economy that we have. Um, and so it's like those factors that feel most important to me, kind of saying, okay, well, if it's constructed, what what are the material conditions that construct it and how could we actually change them to create a world where maybe certain things weren't so um, pathologized or seen as, you know, a, a kind of form of deviance that needs to be eradicated. Yeah, I think a really good example of like the really delicious complexity that you like nail in this book is the diagnosis chapter, because a lot of people talk about diagnosis, like diagnosis is good, diagnosis is bad, but it's like you actually describe it with like Words that I haven't like heard applied to it before, you call it a verb, but also a prophecy and a passport. And I don't know, it's just like so poetic to me. But could you like explain a little bit about how you see diagnosis? Oh my God, I'm so glad that you like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, because I feel like it's similar, right? You see similar divisions and debates. And I feel like actually probably a lot of your audience will connect with this because I feel like I've seen people arguing with each other in the comments of your post before doing this. <laughs> Diagnosis is bad and it's all fake and like, or, or also, you know, it's oppressive and harmful. And then often the kind of comeback as well, actually my diagnosis helps me or it helped me understand myself or it got me my meds or, you know, all of these different things. And so I try to kind of, again, like break through this question of like, is it good or bad? and start to think about, like you say, think about it as a verb. So what does it do? And this idea that it's always serving an end and always bringing something about. And actually the thing that it brings about is going to be very different in different contexts, you know, like getting a schizophrenia diagnosis as a parent, like that could see your children taken away, that could see you incarcerated. Um, but also I know so many people who have like fought for years for their autism diagnosis or their ADHD diagnosis um, or eating disorder diagnosis, you know, these things that can provide people with resources. And so I kind of think of it as a tool that can be wielded in really violent and oppressive ways that can also lead towards death, but also can be used in ways um, that kind of honor autonomy and dignity um, self-understanding, access to community, um, and that, yeah, it's kind of not just one or the other. But I think the question at the center of that is also of power, right? Like when we talk about bad diagnosis, diagnosis experiences, they're almost always, whether it's getting a diagnosis or being denied one, they're almost always because a mental health professional is being shitty. Like that's usually yeah. the reason. Like someone else who has this power over you and your task is to sit down and like give all the evidence and prove to them that you're worthy of this diagnosis, that you're worthy of your meds or you're worthy of even just like this tool of self-understanding or like, yeah, when you get like the wrong diagnosis or a diagnosis that doesn't work for you against your will or like can't get a diagnosis taken off your record or all of these things. And actually if you got rid of that power dynamic if power like didn't play such a big role in diagnosis then like I don't know I see it as something that could be really liberating um could help us understand ourselves better could help us heal but I also say that I think to push beyond these like divisive like yes or no debates we have to think really big like I think in a very utopian kind of abolitionist way 
about like what could be possible. For example, like self-diagnosis, that opens up questions about, even when we talk about like physical illness, like what would the world be like if we all had more access to like physical tests or like, you know, equipment, but also medical information, like if this stuff was more freely available, more democratized, I think like the way that we think about diagnosis would be really different. And I think that you often hear this thing, right, of like, isn't self-diagnosis, isn't that like dangerous or irresponsible? But actually, Mm -hmm. I think if we had a world where we all had more access to like things that are gatekept within medical institutions, you know, Dr. Devon Price um, talks about how we could have a true informed consent model for like all drugs, like accessing all drugs. And actually, if we all had the expertise, were provided the information, how could we transform the way that we think about diagnosis and treatment? And yeah, and another kind of link with like queer and also trans stuff is, you know, I'm, I talk about how I think that trans communities are really actually showing us how a world could look. Um, mm-hmm. beyond diagnosis or beyond the way that we understand diagnosis now and really like prefiguring that future because, you know, we've got people having to stay alive, like having to get DIY, like do DIY hormones um, and having to like educate one another in like under underground communities outside of traditional medicine. And then you've also got people saying, well, you know, I identify this way and like I group together with other people who have some common experience. Um, and like the official diagnosis of gender dysphoria, like that doesn't work for me. Like this is how we choose to categorize ourselves. And so, yeah, while it's not like a direct comparison, I think there is something there that kind of shows us what creativity um, and what kind of autonomy and self-determination could be possible in how we think about our body minds. Yeah. I also think it was very poetic how you described disability as a portal, because I've been thinking a lot about like boundary crossing and like, especially in this book, I feel like you talk a lot about how like madness kind of like always spills out of these categories that we try to squeeze it into. And that disability is like seen as this really like negative, bad thing, like a closing down of possibilities. But thinking about it as like a portal, like it's like a thing you can step into to like go somewhere else or like to see the world from a different perspective. Yeah, I feel like Leah ben Mosh talks about this and someone else I feel really bad that I can't remember what their name is talks about this thing of like um, disability and like the social model and these different kind of um, theories and lenses that like disabled thinkers and activists have used. These are like threshold concepts, like they often mm-hmm. represent this like threshold where once you pass it, the entire way that you think about the world and like bodies and minds, like you kind of can't come back, I often think. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, we often think of disability in this extremely medicalized, like individualized way, which like, yeah, for anyone who's familiar with the medical model is all about like, it's this inherent biological defect inside of you. And like, it's like objective, what they call in philosophy, like a natural fact and something that's consistent a- across time and space. The historian Joan W. Scott talks about disability as this collective affinity that actually it's kind of like we've been saying about like madness or mental illness, like disability is 
kind of like not a clear thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you kind of can't point towards, it's not like a, a category with hard boundaries. I say it's very like leaky and like, it's kind of like a moving target, like at different times in history or across different cultures, like what we think about as, as being disabled, like is very different. And I do really think that like, especially when we think about um, crypt theory, Robert McCrua has this idea of compulsory able-bodiedness or a compulsory able-mindedness. Basically, like, instead of talking about disability as like our focus, why don't we actually look at like the idea of able-bodiedness, these ideas that like we see as normal and actually like interrogate those a bit because that's like what disability is constructed in the shadow of, right? This idea that there is some normal, healthy, objectively good body um, which is obviously also like a gendered idea and like a racialized idea and actually when you start to think about that compulsory able-bodiedness or able-mindedness I feel like you realize that like most of us don't fit that (laughs) yeah like most of us you know we're all gonna like experience illness in some way Um, you know like disabled people are always saying instead of saying able-bodied why don't we say yet to be disabled because if you live long enough like we're all going to become disabled at some point and also you know I kind of list all these examples like people who are like oh like I have an epilepsy diagnosis but I haven't had a seizure since childhood or you know ever since COVID like it's not long COVID but like I'm really run down all the time or people you know I have friends who like have like you know the highest possible glasses prescription before being considered like legally blind and you know they'd never consider themselves disabled but it's like if their glasses break they're definitely not having like the normative experience of the world and so I kind of want to point towards the fact that like most of us actually deviate from this like idealized idea of the good or able body and I think that doing that like again it changes the way that we think about disability justice as well like disability justice is a project that would help all of us we saw this during covid right like oh if we could all work from home or if we could all like at universities there was this big thing about at my university they used to always say oh we can't put lectures online like we can't do this we can't do that and then covid happened and actually like we all got these things all of a sudden and so i think yeah disability justice like as a movement we can see all the different ways that actually it could support and help all of us if we start to deconstruct this idea that like there's a hard line between disabled and non-disabled. And I also just think like disabled cultures of like collective care, you know, Sins Invalid talk about this in their principles of disability justice, right? The idea that like we need to be working across impairments. We shouldn't be being like your diagnosis over here and my diagnosis over here, like actually we need to be coming together. I think these ideas are really potentially transformative. And so I basically argue that, again, it's a bit like the diagnosis conversation, right? Like we're always like, does this count as disabled or does it not count as disabled? Who's allowed to say it? Like this kind of thing. And I think that while it's important to think about, especially with like madness or mental illness, like it's important to think about, you know, could I identify as disabled? Like that can be really liberating, but kind of beyond like identity and self-identification, I'm really interested in like, how do we use disability as a lens for seeing the world? And as kind of like, you know, like I say, this collective affinity and something that we can unite under and all organize under. 
And Sammy Shulk, who's just um, published a book called Black Disability Politics, talks about this as well. The fact that like some people who might benefit from disability spaces, they might just never want to describe themselves as disabled or it might not be safe for them. Or like it's, a, you know, it's another like term associated with like oppression that, and stigma that they're bringing on themselves. And so actually, yeah, maybe the coming together and the working together in like disability focused spaces is kind of more important than that thing of like, are you or aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I do kind of feel like it was liberating for me to accept myself as disabled because like I was pushing past all these limits for so long. And like in America, we're taught that like, there are no limits, like you can do anything. And like, that's supposed to be really like freeing but for me it was like the opposite so yeah I think we have a weird idea of like what is free (laughs) yeah definitely I think I had a similar experience with it and I think that that like social model understanding of like here are all the ways that like society is disabling me or is disabling for me like that was definitely very liberating for me which again is like pushing against this idea that there's like I don't know, something inherent or objective. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about like the concept of recovery lately because I just, Mm. I don't know, I'm like seeing a lot about it where it's just like this heavy focus on like, you can recover from mental illness. Don't worry, it's possible. And I'm like, but like, what does that mean in a world that is like making us sick and mad, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. what do you think about this concept of recovery? Well, it's interesting because I feel like in my research, I think I, I saw about how like recovery as a concept was a uh, was initially pioneered by like um, like addiction recovery like communities, and it was kind of this idea of like you can still have a livable life, um, like it's still possible to live your life like in the way that you want to in a way that's fulfilling. Whereas obviously, it's been so co-opted under mm-hmm. neoliberal capitalism. Surprise. <laughs> You know, there's a collective in the UK called Recovery in the Bin um, who kind of do stuff around mental health and mental health services. And yeah, they say they're like under capitalism, like for some of us, there is no recovery. Like (laughs) this is the world that's like making us unwell and you expect us to like somehow adjust to it and assimilate back into it. Like that's just not, yeah, it's just not possible for many of us under our current conditions. And so I think it's really important to acknowledge that because otherwise it just becomes like another way that you can like blame yourself because like it's individualized as well right this idea Mm -hmm. that like you must recover like you as an individual must recover rather than pointing towards the ways that like we I was gonna say should like recover our society (laughs) but like (laughs) the way society needs to be transformed and I think it's complicated right because like we all want to heal you know I I, in the same breath as saying recovery is not like not possible for many of us, I do often think like I want to heal, like I want to access happiness, access joy. Like there are many struggles and like types of distress that I experience. That like maybe I would like to see a future where like I don't experience them anymore. You know, I I'm not in therapy right now, but I've been thinking about going back, and I've, I've been grappling with like you know the individualism and all of that stuff. And I've kind of come to a place where I'm like, you know what, I may need to go to therapy or like do my Headspace app or like all of this stuff. (laughs) Um, And it's okay. Like 
it's okay to be like trying to survive and trying to have the most livable life you can. But equally, I don't want to lose sight of those bigger things. Um, and I think that like continuing to organize and agitate and like talk about these like political domains, like to me, that's also kind of part of how we actually get to recovery or like true recovery, which I think is is healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of I'm thinking about it as like, I don't maybe I'm being too literal about the word because I can do that sometimes because I'm like a word nerd. <laughs> but like recovery is like getting something back from before. But I don't really want that. I don't want that person back that was like suffering. And like, I I don't know, I think because for me, it was like a lot of my suffering was coming from like trying to fit myself into the world. And so like if recovery means like getting back to work and like, you know, getting back to normal, like I don't want that, you know. So I'm kind of thinking about it as like not getting something back, but like moving on, you know, and like developing and like going forward. Yeah, definitely. Because, yeah, like you say, like the people who are like high functioning or high performing in like the society we have right now. Yeah, I don't know if I actually want to be that kind of person. No. <laughs> like sometimes I'm like jealous of the people who can do it. But like, mm-hmm. I, yeah, it's not it's not me. And I also I don't know. I don't know if it's good. Um, and so I think it's like holding holding that dual thing, like being able to hold that being like you know, I want to feel better, but also like, what do you sacrifice actually when you recover or assimilate into a society that is trying to kill you? Yeah. I think that's true, that moving forward thing. Because I think that's why I was like, oh, we need to recover our society. I was like, that's not right either. Because I think like, yeah, the society that like we need to grasp towards, like, yeah, I don't think it's going back to a particular point I can't point towards like a moment in history, but like I want to go back towards, I think we need to like create something very new and move on towards something. Yeah, very different. Yeah, I am thinking about this chapter that you have on art as a mad liberation tool. And I was like really not expecting a chapter about art in the book, but I was like very pleasantly surprised. And I think like it's such a good connection to make. And it made me think of, have you read Olivia Lang's book, Funny Weather? No, I haven't. It's a bunch of essays about art. Um, But she says that art is a training ground for possibility. And I was like, and I feel like that's what you're describing in that chapter. You talk about like zines that people have made. Mm. Yeah. So again, I like tried to think about this thing of like what you mentioned earlier of this obsession with like objectivity and like science and like we need to like stick with the science and this idea that I really like art because it's just the opposite of that art is so much about subjectivity actually like the viewer like you can make your own interpretation of it but also like art can be really weird or messy or make no sense like art is just like allowed to be and I feel like in many ways that's like incomplete opposition to psychiatry I look at zines, which like for anyone who's like not familiar with zines, they're like kind of non-commercial, often like very small circulation, like underground, often like magazines, or they might kind of come in the form of magazines, but you know, you might photocopy them or you kind of draw them. Um, They're a lot more DIY. And like, I looked through all these collections of like mad zines and zines about mental health. 
And some of them are so weird. <laughs> like some of them, like, you know, when you open them, they just fall apart or you like might open it up and you're like, which way round is this supposed to be? Like, I can't make sense of like, it'll just be like random scribbles and stuff. And I really like that. I feel like they're just allowed to be how they are. They don't have to fit into like a specific box. But then there were also some other like really, really emotional and personal ones that were, you know, just written by people with experience of like mental health problems or madness, distress, trauma. And, you know, they'd be so, so different to kind of the like, quote, official medical advice that like you usually see. Like I read one that was about um, self-harm, which was called Still Healing. And I feel like, you know, the medical advice that you get about self-harm is like, don't do it, just stop doing it. <laughs> and mm-hmm. like, this, it was so gentle and so considerate, you know, like in saying, actually, many of us want to stop, but like can't stop because it's a coping mechanism. Or here's how you, you know, care for your wounds. Like after it's happened, here's how you hide your scars. Here's, here's how you have conversations with people about it. And yeah, I think the writer who I think is called, their, their zine name is Dogs Not Diets. I think they really show how personal and subjective our experiences are and how like there isn't just like some blanket guidance that you can give that's going to apply for everyone. Like it's different for everyone. And they say that they're like the guidance I give, like, you know, what works for me might not work for you. And instead of like authoritatively trying to come from above, it's very democratic, you know, it's like, here's what I as someone with lived experience can offer to you. And Hel Spandler, an academic who's been working on this project, um, which is called Mad Zines, like they say this thing of like, they try to like be with zines and they're like, so often when we interpret or read things, again, we're like, what does it mean? Like, I need to understand like, what's like the Cliff's Notes? Like, what is it? And they're like, actually, when sometimes when you get these really weird zines, you just have to like sit with them and be like, okay, I don't really get it, but like, I see you, I hear you. And I feel like there's something in that, in like the way that we also approach each other's struggles and crisis. Like there's not always going to be a quick answer or we're not always going to get it. And like, that's okay. Like we can still be with one another. But yeah, I feel like art to me is just like, it is kind of madness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And we always talk about, right, like Sylvia Plath and like Van Gogh and all these people um, who created beautiful things. And we're like, is it their madness that made them great artists? Or like, was their madness like a horrible side effect of their art and all this stuff? And it's kind of like, to me, the two are just like so intertwined. I think thinking outside of like the bounds of like the world that we have. Yeah. To me, that's like, that's art, that's imagination, but it's also madness. Yeah. And I think the DSM like pathologizes creativity in a lot, especially like in terms of like ADHD, because it's like distraction is like a symptom, but distraction is like a crucial part of the creative process. Like you can't have ideas unless you like go do something else and think about something else. And then ideas like pop up kind of like randomly. So I've been thinking about that a lot. Like how art is like a threat because it does allow us to kind of like think outside of these like lines and like norms. Yeah, it's so true, isn't it? Because it's like creativity in many ways is just like making connections. Like 
connections that like aren't necessarily instinctive or don't like make sense to everything else, right? Like taking something from over here and putting it somewhere like completely random or different, which yeah, is very pathologized. And yeah, I feel like with ADHD, there's so many like, so much of the criteria is like doing X thing in like an inappropriate time or Mm -hmm. like not the right context, et cetera. Whereas like, yeah, that's like what creativity often is. Yeah, I feel like the DSM is like, it's like in opposition to art. Yeah, I go back to ADHD, I think, because it's like this stuff applies to, I think, like all DSM diagnoses, but like it's so obvious with ADHD. It's like so obviously about like work and context and like an attack on like creativity and autonomy. I've been, I have like really horrible, horrible anxiety that like really I would love not to have, (laughs) but I tried to like pathologize it and tried to see it as like, you know, this like medical thing for a long time and it didn't really work. And I read a book called The Courage to Create uh, by Rollo May. And he talks about like anxiety as the flip side of creativity. And like, it's a very important part of creativity because it's like something that drives you to want to make things, but also like, I'm going to get like really deep about mortality (laughs) but like he talks about creativity as this attempt to like live beyond death when you create things you're like also aware of your existence and like your mortality and that is going to cause anxiety also so like it kind of has helped me to just think about it as like this is just like part of being a creative person and like it's not all good or all bad it's just kind of something I have to like work through and like live with That's really interesting. Yeah. I'm always really interested in ways of like reframing anxiety because it's definitely one of the things I experience that I'm just like, I hate it. (laughs) Yeah. It like just sucks. Like there's nothing, (laughs) no bright side. Yeah. But then, and again, I'm like, maybe I can hold the two. Like, again, Mm -hmm. it feels like such a thing though that is, it feels like such a cool part of me. Like my earliest memories, like I've always been anxious. And I think that it's in some ways like it probably is something that makes me write in the way that I write. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, it kind of helps me to just be like, okay, well, if I'm going to be a super creative person, then I'm also going to be a super anxious person. And that's just like how it is. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned about like famous artists who were like mentally ill or mad. And people will like say this thing where if you bring that up, they'll be like, oh, you're really romanticizing mental illness when you talk about how it's like linked to creativity but like Mm. I don't it like bothers me because I'm like but that is true for me you know Mm. yeah I think sometimes this idea of romanticizing can be really annoying yeah because it's like yeah it can be very true and it's not like always to romanticize it it's just like that can be like that like that is a correlation that people have observed for like a very long time right and I feel like so I've always written poetry which I've like never shown any. Really? I've started writing more like prose lately and like posting online, but like, yeah, my like poems. Um, But like my whole life, that was just kind of how I dealt with suffering. And I didn't know any other way to like deal with it. And it's hard for me to write poems like when I'm happy and content. So like in a way, mm-hmm. like it is something that like I make art with. Do you know uh, the poet Yersa Daly Ward? Yeah. She says the terrible writes poetry. I just feel like that's it just like stabs me in the heart. Yeah. And I feel like some of undoubtedly some of the most creative periods of my life have been times when I've been like really traumatized because like mm-hmm. people sometimes talk about this thing, right? Of like sometimes it can be like 
a reaction to trauma can be like playing out the thing again and again, but like in ways where you have like a bit more autonomy or, you know, and to me that doesn't feel like necessarily pathological. I think that makes a lot of sense. Like, yeah, I feel like I often have like done that when I'm having to process something is be like, right, okay, I need to get it out. Um, or like replay it in this way or replay it in that way. And yeah, I've been thinking about fiction recently and I feel like that will probably be like another way that I do that is like through different characters or different setups, like thinking about how to like play things out and also like analyze and understand them, right? Like I feel like Mm -hmm. art is a a way of doing that. But in the same breath, I also feel like healing and like being well, like that can also open up like the capacity for creativity as well right sometimes I feel like suffering can really stifle or like inhibit your ability to create like I guess it depends on the circumstances um yeah in those instances I'm like it's only through like experiencing joy or you know having the space and capacity to have excess energy or thinking or that kind of thing like they're the instances where creativity is freed up like I often find it on the weekends or in the holidays. Sometimes I'll, I'll just, that's when I start having like my weirdest or like most interesting thoughts because I'm like, I'm not just thinking about working every day mm-hmm. <laughs> and how I need to sleep or like have to do this errand or that errand, you know? Yeah, I guess it depends on like the medium for me. Like poetry is a very specifically a thing that I do when I'm like not feeling good, but then there are other things that I make that like I do need to be like in a good place. I think especially like really long form kind of like essays and stuff. I didn't really start making any of those until I was like in a more like just kind of stable place, I think. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it depends. That makes sense. And and so then in the book, I also try to like link up these like questions that we're talking about with creativity to like, you know, when we're talking about abolition or radically transformed societies and systems of care, like... I think that artistic or creative impulse is so much a part of it, right? Having like really genuinely mad ideas (laughs) and being like, could we do this? Like, is it possible? Um, And like, I look at this one project um, by an artist called The Vacuum Cleaner, who like talked to like lots of service, mental health service users. And is like, if you could literally design like any safe place to go mad like he calls it like the designer asylum but it's really just like asylum to mean a place of safety that you could design any place to go mad what would it look like literally think like a child like think big and like all of these examples are like there are people who are like it would have like a teleportation device or like a disco room or like a place where you could just smash everything and like throw paint on the walls um you know there'll be like a rocket ship like some of them are literally not within the world that we have but I think they still point towards like fundamental desires that people are deprived of within our mental health systems like having autonomy or like being able to like be with your family and friends like that's what the teleportation device to me is right is like why should I have to be within the mental health system or in the community like why aren't the two together and so yeah I feel like it's that creative instinct that kind of allows us to dream big and to connect up our imaginations with like, yeah, how can we turn them into tangible futures? Yeah. I hate the idea that like we have to be sensible all the time in our politics. Yeah. 
I was going to ask, I guess the last question I have for you is like, what projects or organizations around mental health care are you like really excited about? So I'm really excited by the Hearing Voices Network. I feel like this is one of the earliest ones that like I came across that like really reframed the way that I thought about mental health. And it's like a kind of peer support network that tries to approach the experience of hearing voices or like hearing or seeing things that other people don't from like a kind of non-pathological or almost kind of like a neurodiversity approach. And so again, while it's not being like, oh, hearing voices is like always good and fun. It's like, okay, what if actually we didn't just focus on getting rid of like what's described as a symptom, but like, what if I actually listen to the content? Like, what is the voice saying? Because some people's voices are saying really distressing things, right? Like telling them to harm themselves and actually like through delving into the content and trying to make meaning out of it, that can be really helpful for some people. And then there are other people who are like, I'm never alone because like my voices are always with me like that. I wouldn't want to get rid of them. Like that's a nice thing. Or I read about this woman who was like, um, when I'm leaving my house in the morning, my voices remind me to like get my keys and like pack my lunch (laughs) and all of these different things. Right. That I think like, you know, while these experiences can also be extremely distressing, it tries to kind of take this like more neutral approach to like, how can we maybe live with them or accept them or befriend them? Which to me was like, yeah, very mind blowing. Also, I think Mad Pride is a thing that I, yeah, I'm really into. And a group called the Campaign for Psych Abolition in the UK, like reestablished Mad Pride for the first time last year. And it's basically, you know, like a pride parade, a space that like where people who identify as mad um, can just like celebrate their identities and also celebrate their assimilation like into the community, which again was like big paradigm shift for me being like, oh, this is something you could just be proud of and like be happy with and like, you know, have community structured around. I think they're really good. And also Trieste, which is a town in the northeast of Italy that basically has a kind of non-coercive, non-carceral mental health system. And that's something that I think a lot of people say or think is like impossible. And they kind of see, you know, incarceration and hospitalization as like the only way to respond to certain types of crisis. But Trieste, you know, again, they take that really imaginative approach that's like, what if we like really be with people and negotiate with people and like try to listen to their struggle or try to create, like try every possible, again, it's creativity, right? Try every possible solution that we can before we like forcibly treat someone. And yeah, like I see that as like a very successful project. And they also try to actually address mental distress, like before people get to crisis point which I feel like is like such a big thing. And then, yeah, Healing Justice London, that's like the organization that I work for, for transparency. But yeah, I think they've taught me a lot, like the healing justice approach in general tries to look at like big structural societal and like intergenerational origins of like trauma and tries to say, you know, how can we actually break these large scale um, cycles? How can we not only like just look at like you know, now you're experiencing madness or mental illness, or now you're in crisis, but actually look really like large scale and long term. Like, how can we prevent people from becoming distressed and in crisis in the first place? And kind of how can we do that big 
societal transformation. So yeah, they're just a few. I feel like peer su- support stuff in particular is really um like exciting for me. I feel like people are always like, you can't help each other. And it's like, <laughs> we actually can. And we are like, we're often like saving each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your book was like the first time I'd really read about Trieste. I'd like heard about it, but it's just like, it's so cool that a place like that exists and they, they like don't believe in locked doors. And so mm-hmm. you really have like a lot of autonomy. Yeah. They say like freedom is therapeutic, which I think is so true, right? It's like survivors are often talking about the fact that like, if you feel suicidal, you like can't be honest with your therapist because you risk being incarcerated. And actually, yeah, like if we had a system where we were allowed to be honest and like we didn't fear the people who were supposed to be helping us, surely, yeah, surely that's therapeutic. Yeah. There was a story about like a woman who they gave her a box and they put like sharps in the box and like gave her a key to it. Mm. And that was just like, I don't know, that was kind of a mind blowing story to me because it's just like so opposite of how we think about self-harm and like how we react to it you know I think she said that she like wanted to do it less because she had this like control over access to it yeah exactly yeah a few people that I spoke to who had like experiences of like yeah psych incarceration said that like that made them want to self-harm more because for some people like self-harm like does feel like a way of exerting some control and like when all control is taken away from you, like for some people like that is going to be their response. Whereas, yeah, like you say, yeah, one person who's quoted in the book is like, as soon as I like had the control or had the option, like I knew I could. Um, and it's like, yeah, they gave her this this key and they will all other people have do it where they give the key to someone who like works at the place. And like if you want to get the key, you can, but you have to like have a conversation and like talk things through first. And like, yeah, for a lot of people, I think that like reduced the amount that they actually wanted to hurt themselves. So yeah, freedom, a good yeah. thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, was there anything else that like we didn't talk about that you wanted to touch on? I feel like we talked about loads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really, yeah, I really enjoyed it because I feel like so many interviews I've had like, yeah, there's like a focus on like, like a, a real focus on one chapter or like one element. Whereas like, yeah, I can't. I actually can't think of any chapter that we didn't touch on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like to jump around and kind of spiral. Yeah, <laughs> oh, it was so nice to chat. Yeah, you are welcome back to Slugtown anytime. <laughs> oh, I would love to come back to Slugtown. <laughs> um, do you want to let people know where can, they can get the book and how they can find you on the internet? Yes, you can buy the book. I've actually made my own shortened link. It's bit dot lee like b-i-t dot l-y um forward slash mad world book and my twitter is misha spelled m-i-c-h-a underscore fraser with a z and i'm also on instagram at misha spelled the same way underscore f-c uh and yeah you can also see my website which is misha fraser carol um carol spelled c-a-r-r-o-l-l dot com um yeah I would be really excited to hear what people think about the book. So also do actually like follow me, message me, tweet me. I'm very up for having more conversations about it. Well, thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. And thank you for listening. Links and notes are in the description and you can find a transcript at sluggish.substack.com. 
I am supported entirely by my generous patrons of the arts. So if you love what I do and want to support it, a paid subscription on Substack gets you access to a more behind the scenes look at what I'm reading and thinking about every week. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, you can send an email to sluggish at substack.com. Stay slimy, my slugs.